Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week, we bring you the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. And today, we're talking about challenging the status quo of reporting on the global south. When it comes to reporting from countries in parts of South America, Africa, the Middle East and South Asia especially, the norm has always been for news organisations in the global north to send foreign correspondents into the thick of the action and they do their best to cover the events from the ground as they unfold. Doing so, however, means you are approaching the story from an incredibly Western perspective, complete with ethical considerations and industry standard practices. And that is not always for the better. One news organisation trying to change their approach is the New Humanitarian, the non-profit newsroom best known for its reporting from the heart of conflicts, disasters and other crises. I'm joined today by the CEO Hiba Ali to talk about how even with their expertise on the subject, they're looking to change how they report on the Global South, easing up on their Global North approaches, or as they like to put it, decolonising their journalism. Part of this mission is to shape the right narratives around communities, empowering them, and to recognise that those people want to be parts of their own solutions. More on that coming up after this. As well as great editorial content, journalism.co.uk brings you the latest jobs and opportunities from around the media industry. Our job of the week is a non-football sports journalist position at GRV Media. For this position and all the rest on our jobs board, head on over to www.journalism.co.uk forward slash jobs. Hibber, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. What's the working situation like for yourself at the moment? Well, we are uh, busy as ever. I think um, for some people, COVID has led to less work and for some it has led to more work. So we have had a lot more work um, in trying to cover the effects of COVID around the world. So we are um, busy, but carrying on. Never a slow news day, no? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Not in our beat anyway. No, no, I'm sure you've got more than more than enough to turn your focus on. And you're obviously well known at the new humanitarian for reporting from the heart of conflict zones and crises. Um, what's your kind of process in covering stories for, in the global south? And you know, how do you work with networks to make that possible? We are set up as a really uh, distributed, decentralized team. So we have a core team of about 25 people, um, including our newsroom, but also our our wider staff. And our editors are based around the world in Bangkok, uh, Johannesburg, Jerusalem. And we try to anchor our coverage as close to the ground as possible. So um, our staff editors then work with a network of freelance journalists in about 60 or 70 countries, um, some of them are local reporters. Some of them are international reporters who are uh, often kind of based in those regions. Um, and we try to use them as our eyes and ears on the ground and and ensure that we are making decisions about coverage based on um, our best understanding of what's really happening and not a kind of um, parachute view from the capitals of the world. Sure. And I'm sure that helps because, you know, you can't be everywhere and having networks on the ground probably makes that that possible to keep your ear on the ground. Right. Yeah, it allows us to be much more agile. I think if we had to staff positions in every um, country of the world, our uh, operation would be much more expensive, first of all. But secondly, um, here we can kind of move to where 
we feel the priorities are um, from a news perspective much more easily and tap into, I think, as the rest of the world is doing in, in the network society, um, networks to allow us to cover more ground than we could on our own. Sure. Um, you've done a lot of surveys uh, uh, with your readers. What kind of demands do they place on you for the, the coverage that you produce? I think what we found is that readers see mainstream media coverage of humanitarian crises as um, inconsistent, superficial, um, and uh, often insufficient. And so what we try to do is fill that gap by providing consistent and in-depth um, coverage of humanitarian crises around the world. Uh, our readers come to us because they're looking for that more nuanced and, and um, on-the-ground perspective about crises. They're coming to us um, in particular for investigations into the aid sector, which you can um, not really find elsewhere. Um, and uh, I think they're coming to us for um, those real kind of human voices that sometimes get um, washed over in mainstream media coverage that can tend to focus on the politics, the um, geo geopolitics, military positioning, et cetera, and, and not so much on the people who are actually affected. Give us a give us a flavor. What what recent stories are you kind of most proud of? Uh, well, one that really stands out for me uh, recently won a One World Media Award. It was a um, a diary by a Yemeni doctor, and he was recounting his experiences of trying to support his community in fighting against COVID nineteen. And it was really a, a an intimate picture of what it's like, an experience that all of us now know well, but in um, a context in which you have an ongoing war and um, a decimated economy and very little access to healthcare, how that then plays out. And so you heard stories of them kind of desperately looking for oxygen. You heard um, stories of, of him, even while sick, continuing to try to help other people. And then you also just heard stories of their day to day, you know, playing football and fasting during Ramadan. Um, and so that was for me the kind of um, picture that we can give, which is a really, I hope, authentic view of what um, life is like on the ground in, in some of these places. Yeah. And how did having sort of your networks on the ground help that story in particular come together? So that story, for example, uh, the the doctor had been in touch with a, a freelance journalist that we had worked with. Um, he hadn't thought of sharing his story. He was just keeping a diary for his own personal records. And she told him, well, there's this news organization that, you know, tries to really do a good job of covering things with context and nuance. And because she trusted the work that we do, I think he then had trust that we would treat his story with integrity. Mm -hmm. And that I think has often set us apart. Um, in some of these places, people are afraid of how the media might um, warp their stories. And if we can build trust as we do on the ground in, in many of the, these um, countries, our networks, um, Kind of have that that faith in the way we're going to handle the story and that allows people to come to us with stories that they might not otherwise have yeah it's interesting you know as much as you're i would say a specialist in this area of of journalism uh even for you you're having conversations of, about how you would like to do things differently and indeed better um can you talk to me a little bit about that absolutely the big focus for us right now as with many is how we challenge the power structures in journalism. And, you know, in the wake of George Floyd's murder last year and the resurgent Black Lives Matter movement, I think many newsrooms are having conversations internally about racial justice, diversity and inclusion. 
for us, we're trying to go a little bit further in saying, what does it mean to decolonize our journalism? So not just how do we diversify our staffing? How do we better represent the audiences that we serve and the people that we serve and the people that we cover? But how does the production of our journalism change if we really want to be a, a decolonized newsroom? And so we're thinking about things like, how do we ensure that our stories are chosen not based on what we think is sexy and interesting, but what matters to the communities that we cover? What kind of language are we using? To what extent is it victimizing or empowering when we say things like Haiti is the poorest country in the Western hemisphere and repeating these kinds of stereotypes without um, explaining why it's the poorest country in the hemisphere and the um, colonial and extractive history that led it to be there. Um, looking at how we our production process and you know we remain largely a team uh, of people from the so-called global north reporting about the global south what kind of power dynamics does that hold and how do we try to um, let go of some of the the gatekeeper um, uh, qualities of being a journalist while hanging on to um, the importance of kind of news judgment and, and standards and quality so we're thinking a lot about um, all of these questions, which are really difficult questions that I think um, we need to, as journalists and as newsrooms, come together to reflect on collectively. As one example, in 2019, the New York Times came under fire for an image they chose to run to lead a story about an extremist attack in Nairobi, Kenya. The choice of image was deemed to be inappropriate and too graphic, as it showed the dead bodies slumped over tables. The New York Times came out and explained that they have run similar images around attacks in the US, and they felt it was their duty as a major US news organisation to document the reality of the violence. And that makes a lot of sense if you're detached from the story, or you're a Westerner like myself. It reminds you of the types of tropes and values that you heard in journalism school, like speaking truth to power. But it turns out, this very classic, if it bleeds, it leads approach did not go down well. One could ask though, the New York Times, despite having an international readership, has an audience which is 70% American. Kenyan readers account for a tiny fraction in all reality. If they're not reading, then who does it really damage to use such practices? Back to Hibba. I think if journalism is meant to help people gain an understanding of the world in order to improve their own lives. Uh, we as journalists need to start widening our understanding of who our audience is in the modern era when everyone has access to that information. So the New York Times may well have a largely American audience, but it is now coming um, under increasing pressure, I think, from audiences around the world as any other newsroom, that if you're going to be writing about us, um, you better take our point of view into account. And I think that's a really positive shift that now we can't just treat the audiences we cover as kind of passive, um, you know, appearances and stories that we're writing for another audience. They are stakeholders in our work now in a way that maybe they weren't before. And I think that's forcing us as, as journalists and as newsrooms to be thinking about, okay, yes, maybe I'm writing for an American audience, but actually um, the Kenyan communities that I'm covering are also reading and also have expectations about how they're going to be represented. And that needs to be something that we're thinking about. So I think it's forcing us to treat the communities that we cover with more integrity and, and recognize that they have agency in these stories and um, that they can't just be kind of pawns in our game. 
what was what was interesting is you know i guess their counter argument to this is well we're the new york times we are one of the most influential um news organizations in the us which in itself is a superpower really on a, on a global stage we don't want to be censoring our work we want to be showing the the impact of um you know violence do you think that's an adequate justification for you know that kind of practice i mean i think every newsroom has different degrees of um, tolerance for graphic images. I think the wider question is to what extent um, does their credibility get damaged if part of um, their audience, whether they see it as a major part of their audience or not, is losing faith in, in the way that they're going about their reporting. And I think in our globalized, interconnected world, if um, and, and in our peer-to-peer -peer world, where increasingly people don't have trust in institutions, they don't have trust in media, they don't have trust in government, they have trust in peers. Um, so I think if you start to hear grumblings from Kenyan audiences, um, American audiences are also going to take notice. And um, so if they've got a justification for their use of graphic images, um, I'm not going to um, make judgment on that. But I think what I'd be interested in is to what extent are they taking into account um, feedback from those global audiences? And and I think, in fact, they did. And they appointed um an editor who would be um, receiving comments from from the kind of communities that they cover, which I think is a great step forward and one that all of us um, need to to start taking more seriously in terms of again how are we um, thinking about our audiences and and to what extent are the communities that we cover considered to be part of those audiences. And I, I think kind of the last thing to say on this particular example is what was interesting is that uh, although they had. A bureau chief based in East Africa, the decision for that image was made by an editor in New York, right? So this is again coming to this point of who is making the decisions in the newsroom. Absolutely. And I think uh, as we think about, as I said, you know, we've always been really um, decentralized, but uh, we can even ourselves go further. And I think certainly all newsrooms can go further. And if we, if we can turn more of that decision-making power as close to the ground as possible, as close to the story as possible, what we're doing is getting a more authentic representation because the people making the decisions are the people who know the story best and who know the, the culture best and who understand the context best. Um, yeah. And so even in a, in a, um, even if you don't have the resources to have people around the world, you know, how are you, uh, how much are you trusting the local freelancers that you might be working on the ground? How much mm -hmm. do yeah. you allow the communities um, that you're covering to have a say in some of these decisions within your own editorial process. And I think the more we can open that process up and devolve the, the decision-making, the more we're getting to a kind of de decolonized form of journalism. So that's a super interesting point, because I guess what we're touching on here is the perpetuation of Western values in, in our wider media coverage. Something quite specific, I guess, to the UK and the US is this idea of well, it's pretty much forbidden to let anyone see your copy or headlines before it gets published. I know in Switzerland and Germany, it's a bit laxer. Do you think having the community more ingrained in the editing process to see things before they're published might help? I think the idea that the journalist is the one who knows best and that we are the, you know, the, the ones who are detached from everything and can give an objective view of the situation and anyone who might have a stake in the story can't come anywhere near it um, is a model of the past. And I don't know that, you know, the communities we cover need to be, you know, involved in every stage of the editing process, but I think they certainly need to be informing our decisions about what we cover and what we don't cover. And um, 
we need ways in which, and some of the things we're thinking about is, for instance, uh, the local media model of town halls with your audience. How do you do that at a global scale so that you are getting input on a regular basis from those communities about what matters to them? So I think that's important. I think um, we spend a lot of time, you know, going back and forth with um, with sources to ensure that we've properly represented things. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think there's a difference between getting the facts right and then um, presenting them in a way that rings true to the people um, that are experiencing them. 100%. And, uh, and so for me, there, there is no, you're not lowering your standards at all by ensuring that the way you are representing things is, is nuanced, that you haven't sensationalized um, and that, uh, the people featured in those stories feel that they've been um, fairly represented. I think that's our job as journalists. Just a practical question here. Um, how much longer does it take to do that kind of a practice? How long does that delay the publishing uh, time to actually get that second gut check? We are uh, significantly slower, I'd say, than a lot of newsrooms. If you look at our uh, website, we put out uh, one or two stories a day, and those stories are rich and deep and take um, weeks and sometimes months to come together because we want to ensure that we're getting them right. And while that um, reduces our outputs, I think what it means is that people have more faith in every piece that we publish. So um, yeah, it certainly slows down our process, but I we often get feedback from readers to say, we really appreciated that you took the time to get the nuance right on this story and they'll compare it to other stories from other newsrooms and say, you know, when so-and-so published X, Y, and Z, um, they presented things in a way that was harmful and damaging. And we appreciate that you took the time to get it right. And I think that's in line with our values and so well worth the, the time that it takes. Good. Well, I mean, continuing this idea of sort of perpetuated Western values, are there any other that you'd like to see kind of thrown out the window? You know, objectivity has been coming up a lot lately in the context of um, these discussions about racism. Uh, I agree with the the view that I've heard from several people now that objectivity is a privilege of um, journalists who can afford to be detached from the issue. And for people who are actually living these stories, um, it's completely unreasonable and probably not even in the interest of the journalism for them to pretend to be objective. I think we've seen a lot of examples um, in recent years of newsrooms kind of waking up to the fact that this um, concept of objectivity is, is largely a farce. Uh, we have seen The Guardian calling climate change what it is, a crisis. Um, we've seen The New York mm -hmm. Times calling out Donald Trump for being a liar. I think being willing to draw conclusions from the facts is part of how journalists can help people make sense of the world. And um, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying racism is bad or describing policies that are discriminatory as discriminatory or describing a vaccine rollout um, globally for what it is deeply unjust. And so uh, I'm not sure that we are doing our readers a service in hiding behind a veil of objectivity. And I think we need to be ready, again, as part of this movement towards decolonizing our journalism to call out injustice when we see it. I see. So embracing i suppose outrage when it when it when the story calls for it i mean to say when it's supported by the facts yes exactly interesting when we think about crises and conflict what are things perhaps stories to come in the pipeline in the future on the horizon that could you know we could we could perhaps observe these these values in 
One of the things I've been reading about and thinking about a lot, which is one of the most sensitive and complicated um, in the news media, is the question of Palestine. And you'll hear Palestinian residents of some of the neighborhoods that have been facing what many media have been calling evictions complain about media coverage that hides the colonialism and settlerism behind many of Israel's actions. And so describing, for instance, um, the situation in Israel-Palestine as a conflict which suggests that you have two sides that are um, equally powerful fighting each other rather than an occupation under international law, um, I think is one example of where the media need to evolve in how they are thinking about um, objectivity. And we saw quite a bit of evolution actually in the last conflict um, in Israel-Palestine in terms of, or again, I just used the word conflict, but in terms of how the media um, were describing it. And I think um, many more efforts to try to again, explain the history and the power dynamics that are leading to this situation in the first place, rather than just describing the result as though it, it um, you know, was happening in a vacuum. So that's one I think to watch for the future in terms of how all of this plays out in practice. The format of coverage definitely comes into the conversation because unless you work in long-form documentaries or online journalism, the time and space needed for nuance is sometimes a luxury we can seldom afford. Coming back to our perpetuated news values, as journalists we are always taught from day one to simplify and package difficult stories, and that process is criticised for allowing important contexts to be scrapped in the name of brevity and soundbites. Nowhere is this better demonstrated than the so-called parachute style of journalism, where reporters are sent to countries to cover events, distill the main findings, then hit the eject button and move on to their next story. This might be an effective model for breaking news, for example, but is it the only way to go with humanitarian reporting? Let's talk more about how the new humanitarian is trying to rethink that model and head towards a more participatory model involving their audience, starting with its series called 10 Crises to Watch. Yeah, every year we identify 10 crises that we think um, should be on people's radars. It's part of, I think, our mission as a, as a newsroom to raise awareness about crises to help direct people's attention. Um, it allows us to highlight um, in, in a way that really does set the agenda. Um, it's one of our most read pieces of the year, uh, crises that we think aren't getting enough attention. It also gives us a kind of guide um, for what we're going to cover over the course of the year. And I think one of the uh, challenges around decolonized journalism is, you know, this model of kind of popping in, doing a story, popping out, moving on to the next thing. And one of the things that we're trying to do differently is to be consistent in our coverage and to stick with a story over time so that we can tell it in all of its detail and all of its nuance and all of its context. And so the 10 crises also allows us, of course, it's not all we cover, but it does allow us to say these are issues that we think are important and that we'd like to commit to over the course of the year. Yeah. And so sort of three, six, nine, in whatever increment you can come back to them and say, well, you know, how, how much attention have we given this? Is there more to say? How do you, how do you keep yourself accountable and make sure you are coming back to those stories? Yeah, we've uh, we've got kind of our own internal um, check-ins. Uh, we have in the past also done public uh, check-ins. So halfway through the year, we revisit those 10 crises and, and kind of update on where the situation is. Um, sometimes that's more formal. Sometimes it's just part of our, our general coverage. 
but I, I also encourage our readers to hold this accountable, and they do. Um, we get emails from people saying, why aren't you covering this? Why aren't you covering that? And I think that's a really healthy um, form of exactly what I was talking about before, that, yeah. that we're not alone, the ones deciding what's important, and that we're opening up that process um, to democratize it, really, and, and yeah. allow other uh, both our audience and the communities we cover to be a greater part of that process. Yeah. And actually, we've been doing more of that with the 10 crises as well in terms of getting input from people before we make that list. Um, and even after we make the list, we then say, well, what do you as our readers think are the most important crises? And we make that public as well in order to um, useful really kind of open up that conversation more broadly. And as, as a practical tip, do you revisit that like in a, a specific meeting or is there a specific mechanism that you know alerts you to um, come back to is, is it a date in the diary that you you look at or how does it work we have uh at, at times kind of quarterly done where you know we're not always as um consistent ourselves and it's one of the things we're, we're also working on at times we do it quarterly where um we'll say okay here there are 10 crises and and we have an internal meeting where we'll discuss um or the editors will kind of send in their thoughts to the executive editor around mm -hmm. where we need to go in our coverage. Um, sometimes that happens uh, halfway through the year. And then sometimes, as I say, it's a little bit um, more informal where in our regular pipeline calls, we're thinking, okay, well, this was on our list. What do we have um, that we can add to, to our coverage on that? How else is the new humanitarian thinking about uh, changing the way it approaches crises and conflict reporting? I think what we're frustrated about in our own process is that, um, and to be honest, it's it's not a question of local versus international reporters. A lot of the freelance journalists that we work with, um, by by the nature of being freelancers, uh, are not as familiar with what we need um, in terms of our final output. And so we're often having to kind of rewrite copy on the desk to get it to the level that we need for publication. And that feels really unsatisfying in part because it's just not a great use of time. And then in part, because um, if we want to be as authentic as possible in our representation of local voices and, and, you know, not be um, determining the narrative from afar, uh, having journalists from those regions and countries being the ones to really um, shape the story then we want, again, that um, that process to be as close to the ground as possible. So one of the formats we're thinking about, and these are really early stages in our own discussions, is um, a greater use of podcasting only because in many of the countries we cover, English isn't necessarily the first um, language. And uh, so having people writing in English for us means that they're already kind of at a disadvantage in terms of how they're expressing themselves and um, orally we think we can probably allow people to express themselves a bit more authentically. Um, and what we would do is then provide the platform, provide support in how we put those stories together, but have uh, really an open call to say, you know, if you are living in a context that you're experiencing crises and you want to share your story, come to us with the story that you want to share and we'll help you put it out there. So that again, um, they're the ones determining what the narrative is, not us. So that's one of the things uh, we're looking at. We're also thinking about um, partnerships with organizations that do more regular kind of community um, surveying or polling or have um, more systematic ways of getting a finger on the pulse of what the issues are in the community, what the rumors are in the community that can help inform our reporting. 
Um, so that's another uh, another thing we're looking at in the future, not so much in terms of format, but in terms of um, workflow and, and decision making. Really interesting. Um, a word on universal practices, as I think what we've touched on today really is discrepancies between North, north and South and how we cover crises. What might, you know, a state of play look like where um, newsrooms around the world, you know, are more uni universal in the way they, they cover um, humanitarian stories, you think? It's really tricky, and we've been thinking a lot about that. What would a universal kind of set of standards look like? I think journalism is certainly dominated by a Western standard. And um, in many countries of the world, the notions of trust, notions of um, how you get information are, are very different. And so opening up, I think, some of that... Um, some of our understanding of what that looks like, I'm not yet sure. And especially given that there are, um, you know, for a global newsroom like us, we're operating in places that have such different cultures and ways of working. And so what is it that kind of rises to the top as the universal thread or glue that pulls it all together? I think there has to be a commitment to the truth. I think there has to be, um, to my mind, journalism is, is about uh, improving the world. So there has to be some kind of commitment that journalism is, is a force for good and it's um, having a positive impact. Uh, and then I think beyond that, we have to really be a bit more flexible about what we consider to be acceptable practices. And as long as we're transparent about what those practices are and um, yeah. our own workflows and production, uh, I think we can let people decide for themselves rather than insisting on this is the way we do things. And if you do it any other way, then you're not... Um, of quality or of yeah. standard. And then one last thing I think um, could help guide us on a universal standard. We tend to think of what is a good story rather than what is a story that is of service to the people that we're covering. And I think that kind of a shift would allow us to move away from um, kind of old school uh, notions of standards and move towards um, are we doing good with our journalism? And if the answer is yes, um, and we can, you know, abide by a certain set of minimum um, consensus-based principles, for example, being fact-based, et cetera, um, that would be, for me, a shift in the right direction. Are we providing a good service to the people that we're covering? Is our, is our journalism of use to them? Um, and that could already be uh, something that kind of binds us together. Combination of really strong messages there. Love that. Is there a kind of a main message you'd like to leave our listeners with as they think about their next story on the Global South or how they indeed cover this subject? Is there one main parting message you'd like to leave them with? I think what I would say is that as we as journalists think about the journalism of the future, you know, we're grappling with a lot of things, business models, we're grappling with toxic newsroom cultures, um, that one of the things we need to grapple with as well is... Um, for lack of a better term, because I know everyone has a problem with it, uh, decolonizing our journalism, and that that isn't just out of uh, a moral obligation, but that it will make our journalism better. I don't think we can create excellent journalism in the 21st century without challenging the power structures behind it. And so uh, I see this really as a challenge to all of us to rise to the occasion, to um, stand you know, to align with our own values about what journalism is supposed to be um, and to evolve in, in order not to be 
again, one of these relics of the past that are um, disempowering the people that our, our journalism is meant to serve instead of um, helping all of us uh, as people on this earth move forward. So I, that would be my message that challenging the power structures in journalism is about making journalism better. Hey, but it's been great to speak to you. Thank you so much for jumping on the podcast and sharing your insights with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Great to speak to Hibber there and lots to go away and think about. Some lessons from my side would be to report for or with communities, not just on them. Track the crises you are writing about. Find a way to come back to see how much progress has been made. But the bottom line is to be open to change and shaking up the formula. The status quo eventually goes stale, so think about anything from formats to language choices to modernise things and not be a relic of the past. If you liked what you heard today, you can check out more of our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. And if you'd like to feature on the show, I'd love to hear from you. Please do drop me an email on jacob at journalism.co.uk. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.